civilians will die. Ah, but those that remain will find themselves heir to a planet no longer in danger of poisoning itself. Finally, after centuries, there will be a bright tomorrow filled with hope and tranquility. The death and destruction that you speak of will only bring about a dark tomorrow. What? You insolent fool. Welcome to issue number five of Comics on Consoles, a monthly in-depth look at the often overlooked adaptations of comic book characters in the interactive medium of video games. I'm your host, Chris Clow, and this month, we're getting dark. To tell you the truth, I've actually wanted to do this game for practically every month that the show has been kicking around in my head, but it seemed prudent to try and wait for the right time. Given that this past Friday marked the wide domestic release of Warner Brothers Pictures' enormous film Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, I've been circling March of 2016 on my calendar to focus that month's podcast issue either on The Man of Steel or on The Dark Knight in an attempt to spiritually tie in with the film. Well, Superman has been put on the back burner for the moment, only because this month's game is one that absolutely fascinates me. It has a well-deserved legacy as perhaps one of the single most unplayable superhero video games ever made because it was just constructed so monumentally poorly from a mechanical perspective. That detail by itself wouldn't make it worth a major focus, though. The thing that makes this month's game so unique is that under a thick layer of one of comics-based gaming's most notable monstrosities lies a creative core that was quite possibly the best Batman story created outside of the comics in the early 2000s. Now, I realize that that's a pretty bold claim, especially considering what this game is, but not only was the story extremely good, but the elements surrounding that story, from the aesthetic environment and character designs to the voice acting and the musical score, just to name a few, were also very refreshing for any Bat fan that was forced to endure the eight-year drought of other media adaptations between Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin and Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. That game is one that you've likely heard about from many a commentator and video game authority as uniquely atrocious. Its title is Batman Dark Tomorrow, developed by Hotgen and published by Chemco in March of 2003, for the original Microsoft Xbox and the Nintendo GameCube. There was going to be a PlayStation 2 release, but it was cancelled, which should tell you something considering that the PlayStation 2 was far and away the most popular system of that generation. You may find this difficult to believe, but for a while there, at the dawn of the sixth generation of video game consoles, Dark Tomorrow was arguably one of the decade's most highly anticipated video games because of how ambitious it was. With a development cycle that reportedly lasted as long as four years, it's difficult to locate exactly what went wrong with the development of the actual gameplay element of the experience. 
Making this more difficult for me personally from a research perspective is the fact that its publisher, Kemco, is based in Japan, and I don't even know a single phrase of Japanese. Fortunately, though, the entity and creators of the Batman character are fellow Anglophones that live in the United States, and we'll be able to lift back at least part of the curtain shrouding Dark Tomorrow in mystery when we begin this episode's discussion portion, which features a very special guest who was front and center with DC Comics and the publisher's involvement with the game's development. But first, let's engage in a regular activity for this show and wind our clocks back in time, this time to before the game came out in early 2002. We're going to jump around a little bit, but I want to give the context for this part of the story because it's kind of important in the way that I relate the game to you. I was going to turn 15 years old in December of 2002, and after reading spotty rumors on websites like IGN and the now-defunct GameSpy, I'd reasoned that I was going to throw my gaming allegiance behind the developers at Nintendo for at least one more console cycle. Why? Because their newest offering, the GameCube, was going to feature something that none of the other consoles had an exclusive video game featuring my favorite fictional character, Batman. Fast forward a little bit to December of 2002. My 15th birthday is arriving in a matter of days, and on the night of December 13th, two of my best friends and I got a ride from my friend's older sister to watch Star Trek Nemesis on opening day in the theater. I was absolutely crestfallen to see that our showing of the film was sold out, and we had to settle for <laughs> for Die Another Day, which would ultimately prove to be Pierce Brosnan's final turn as James Bond. What a note to go out on. As a massive Star Trek fan, though, I wasn't going to let my friend's lack of availability stop me from seeing the new adventure of Captain Picard and the crew of the Enterprise, so I rode the bus into town to go to the same theater so that I could see the movie I had originally wanted to. With some time to kill before showtime after I picked up my ticket, I ventured over to a video game store that was situated a mere stone's throw away from the theater, and looked around at the gaming possibilities that a wonderful GameCube would grant me. Now, imagine my surprise when I hear the bell by the door ring to see a very distinctive, tall, white-haired gentleman walk into the store to look around. That man... <laughs> was my father. Dad? I said in half amazement and half anticipation. Oh. Uh. Hi, Chris. What are you doing here? I excitedly asked him, knowing exactly why he was there. Oh. Um. Nothing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it may have been the single most awkward conversation I had ever had with my father. A few days afterward, I had a birthday party with my family at a pizza place and unwrapped a brand new platinum-colored Nintendo GameCube. Honestly, it was a gift that I'm now positive that at the time I did not deserve. But that whole event gave me one of my most prized and treasured memories of my late father, who just wanted me to have a good birthday that year. Now, a few months later, in March of 2003, the GameCube was proving to be an excellent video gaming choice. 
In addition to great offerings like Super Smash Bros. Melee and the first Metroid Prime game, I would also gravitate towards titles like the multi-platform Batman Vengeance and 007 Nightfire. Uh, also platform exclusives like the funny and mysterious Luigi's Mansion, the strangely attractive Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, the addictive Mario Party 4, and the tough but rewarding and still awesome Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader. Still, I would find myself counting down the days until Batman Dark Tomorrow. Beyond the fact that it was going to be the first major 3D Batman game to be based solely on the Dark Knight of the DC Comics universe, as opposed to a version of the character found in film or animation, this had the potential to be one of the purest Batman experiences ever made up to that point. Developed by British studio Hotgen, Dark Tomorrow burst onto the scene with a mind-blowing cinematic trailer at the Electronics Entertainment Expo in 2001. With a level of dark action and iconic utilization of Batman's car and his fists that had by that point been unseen in a major motion picture, this trailer for Dark Tomorrow gave us what the intent of the game was. It didn't feature any gameplay, because by that point in the development cycle, gameplay didn't really exist in any showable form just yet. By April of 2002, the first major news about the game became available. The once GameCube-exclusive Batman offering would also be releasing on the other two platforms of this new generation, the Sony PlayStation 2 and Microsoft's Xbox. The game would make its first major showing at that year's E3, and would even have a playable demo featured on the show floor. One member of the gaming press that managed to get his hands on the game during that year's expo was Shane Satterfield, who was there for GameSpot.com. He wrote up a report covering his experience for the site, and reading that report today makes it pretty clear that his perceptions about virtually all of its aspects would be prophetic for the final product. In his report, Satterfield notes that the gameplay elements are pretty ambitious when compared with the vast majority of previously released comics-based games up to that point. Striking him in particular were the use of seemingly the entirety of Batman's utility belt. He also notes that the gameplay he was shown calls for more than just fisticuffs, as there was at least partial service to the other nickname that Batman has, namely the one that calls him the world's greatest detective. Still, some words of his read... tragically. When writing about the game's camera, for instance, he takes an optimistic tone, saying that the angle switches on the fly to, quote, better show off the game's action. Interestingly, Satterfield makes a particularly noteworthy mention of the game's controls for the demo he played. He writes, quote, In the latest version of the game that we played, control was still a bit loose, and it sometimes seemed to have a mind of its own, end quote. In what now reads like peeking through a hole in the fence at an awful crime scene, he finishes that thought by writing, quote, But with so much time left in development, this will undoubtedly be cleared up. Yes, undoubtedly. Right? Still, the thing that struck him the most seemed to be the attention to Batman's extensive gadgetry, as well as the looks of the various environments in and around Gotham City. In the end, he came away with an optimistic perspective of what the game could be. The next major bit of news about the game that year would arrive in November, just about a month before its originally scheduled release date, 
what was that news item? A delay. In order to give gamers the best experience, the game would now be arriving in Q1 of 2003, which likely put the fears of some fans to rest, at least a little bit. Surely more time in the oven to perfect things couldn't be that bad, right? When March of 2003 finally arrived, and the game was released, you found no one happier than yours truly. I remember having my dad drive me to Blockbuster Video on the game's release day so that I could have the chance to try out Dark Tomorrow before I inevitably bought it. I got home, popped the disc in, and beheld something wonderful. But I'll get to that part in a minute. When the game actually gave me control over Batman, something was... wrong. Maybe I was too excited. My fingers were probably shaking because I finally had the thing in my hands playing on my GameCube. My reason for getting this console in the first place had finally arrived. Then, time went on. I would try to move Batman one way and, inexplicably, the camera would shift. With the shifting viewing angle came a change in the direction I needed to point the analog stick, so I found myself falling to my death when I was trying to do something that for Batman, would be simple, just getting up to the damn roof of police headquarters to meet Commissioner Gordon at the bat signal. Even though I had a bad feeling in my gut, my blind Batman love made me reason that this was a temporary condition of the game. So, what did I do? Something reasonable, right? No, absolutely not. I walked into a Toys R Us, grabbed the little cardboard flap in the video game section, and took it up to the register. Yes, that's right. I bought Batman Dark Tomorrow even after having played it first. At full price. And it wasn't a quick impulse buy. I waited in line with that cardboard flap. I went up and handed it to the cashier with a smile on my face. I waited for someone to get the game from the back. I handed them $50 in real United States currency and I stared at it in my hands on the bus ride home. Let the monumental idiocy of this whole stream of events sink in for a second. Got it? No? I'll give you one more second. Yeah, I know. I was a stupid high school freshman. When I brought my freshly purchased copy home and began playing again, the frustration, surprisingly, only grew. Jumping was extraordinarily imprecise. Enemies would kill me before I could even get a look at them because of the damn camera angle. Boss fights were exercises in running, hitting, and hiding before a single blow would cause certain death. Murky visuals and again that damn camera made the act of working through the sewers of Gotham City about as useful to movement as wearing a blindfold in a swimming pool. What about strapping on a glider and trying to make it through the Himalayas to an enemy stronghold? Well, I fell to my death playing through that part about 35 times too many, and even after all of that, suffering through level after level of sloppy controls, shoddy AI, inexplicable camera function, and probably the clumsiest control scheme I've ever played with to this day, I made it to the end of the game. Finally, I beat the last enemy, and what am I faced with? I may be defeated, but my vision will be a reality, and you will be there to witness it.
So shall it be. What the hell? Insidiously, Kemco and HotGen got more of my money because I really wanted to know what the hell I'd done wrong. I returned to the blockbuster that I originally rented the game at and bought the chain's exclusive strategy guide. It had a different game-rendered cover than the regular version and had a copy of Batman the Tencent Adventure stapled into the middle of it, which was, incidentally, the best part of that purchase. A dime compared to the 15 bucks I spent. It was when I played through the entire ordeal again with the guide's help that I started to finally begrudgingly understand the terrible truth. This Batman game that I had pinned an entire console purchase on and that I had been waiting for on pins and needles for two years was bad. And not just kind of bad. No, this game was monumentally bad. What was the final clip in the bat's wings, you may ask? It was the fact that the fulfilling ending of the game, where Batman saves the day and returns to Gotham City victorious, was not at all obvious outside of an external source. There is a very specific computer hack you have to perform several rooms before the final boss fight for the game's correct ending to trigger. My disappointment grew to resentment, and ultimately to disgust. In fact, I would absolutely hate this game if not for a couple of very specific elements. Dark Tomorrow is such a lopsided mess because of one primary fact. While the gameplay is horrid and rage-inducing, the actual representation of the Batman character his allies, his enemies, his locales, his sounds, and the overall DC Comics aesthetic are brought to life brilliantly. I don't say that lightly. As much of a slog as Dark Tomorrow definitely is to get through, the very thing that drove me to such an unwise purchase was the thing that made me so happy that I actually did go through the entire thing. When my heart was still pounding with excitement for having picked this game up in a rental on release day, for the briefest of moments, there was ultimate vindication. After a kind of dunderheaded telegraph in the opening minute, we then revisit Batman's origin story, a dark, sepia-toned reminder of the tragedy that took the lives of Thomas and Martha Wayne right before we see Bruce descend into the Batcave. Then... Something wonderful filled my ears. A score that, to me, still ranks among the absolute best Batman themes ever composed.
music for the cinematics, composed by Tot Taylor and performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, was a revelation. It accompanied a version of Batman I'd always wanted to see at the movies, but had never had the chance to see unleashed on the streets of Gotham. The voice acting wasn't bad either, at least in most cases. Batman, Robin, Oracle, The Joker, Commissioner Gordon, Bullock, Montoya, Talia, Raish, and a few others were all well above average, especially considering that the production decided not to cast the, the traditional actors featured in Batman the Animated Series. Not bad. The element, though, that continually urged me to keep going through the slog of the main game was the narrative. This was a very straight DC Comics-esque tale, putting Batman through the ringer as a fighter, as a detective, and as a fierce and determined force for good. Even through the awful camera angles, hundreds of useless, meaningless deaths, and stupid, clumsy tripping over myself, I was genuinely engaged by the story the game had presented. So in at least one respect, Batman Dark Tomorrow delivered for me. It's not an animated movie, nor should it be graded like one, but especially considering the time that it was released, two years before a young guy named Christopher Nolan would come along, Batman Dark Tomorrow was arguably the best on-screen story for the character that didn't originate from movies or animation, and would likely maintain that title until 2009. Critics similarly took notice. While pretty much every review outlet had absolutely no choice but to grade this game between a 0 and 4 on a 10-point scale, many of the outlets did take the time to give kudos to the story and overall representation of the Batman license. I don't feel all that compelled to dive too deeply into the game's critical reception, because I can't possibly do justice to the reality of just how poorly this game was received. Game Informer magazine scored it a 0.75 out of 10, something that I didn't really think was technically possible to do up until that point. Nintendo Power scored it a 1.9 out of 5. IGN heralded that The Dark Knight gets his wings clipped in his latest adventure before scoring it a 3.5 out of 10, and GameSpot, the outlet who sounded so optimistic about the game's clunky controls being worked out by the time it would hit stores, had no choice but to bring the hammer down with a 2.8 out of 10. Needless to say, Batman Dark Tomorrow was a gameplay disappointment, making Batman's recent apocalyptic nightmare in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice look bright by comparison. Still, how about that story? This would be the first time I'd tuck the name Scott Peterson, the comic book writer, not the other one you're thinking of, you know, from uh, Demolition Man, who had his cryo-prison parole hearing on the same day as Simon Phoenix. No, comic book Scott Peterson was the man charged by DC Comics for penning the story to the game, and by all accounts, he did a phenomenal job. No stranger to the Batman character, Scott had spent time as an editor on Detective Comics, as well as an important liaison in DC's Batman office before doing his own freelance work, and had the longest stint on the ongoing series Batman the Gotham Adventures, bringing the world of the animated new Batman adventures to life in a monthly comic book. Because the story is clearly the absolute best part of Dark Tomorrow, which I intend to mean infinitely more positively than that may sound, I knew that when the eventual day would come for Comics on Consoles to tackle this game, that I'd want to try and bring this gentleman and scholar onto the show. 
Thankfully, in this issue's newly returning discussion portion, I can do just that. I know you're awake. Don't make me prove it. Okay, okay. I want information. I don't know anything. Perhaps you didn't hear me. I want information. Who supplied you with a weaponry? A, uh, friend. Give me a name. He'll kill me. And I'll do worse than that. No, not worse than him. And now we move on to the discussion portion of the show, and we have a very special guest for this episode. It is Scott Peterson, who got his start with the Batman character as a comic book editor, and who obviously went on to write the story for Dark Tomorrow, which is definitely the absolute best part of the game, by far. And uh, Scott, you're also a writer um, for prose novels, and you've done uh, work with writing in other areas. Is that right? That is correct. I've, uh, I've I've written some prose. Right now, I've got a graphic novel with first, second books that is uh, being illustrated. It's being being penciled right now, and will hopefully be out in in 2017. I'm doing a, a Batman miniseries. Uh, for DC that hasn't been announced yet, as well oh. as a, uh, a creator-owned book with with Kelly Jones for uh, another publisher. I remember pretty distinctly when I was a kid picking up the very first issue, and it was before I was uh, I was a cognizant comic book collector. So I would take it everywhere. The cover would get torn <laughs> up. I would staple it if the cover came off. <laughs> all of these things. But then you know, after I fell out for a while. And then I came back in, and then I, of course, started working in a specialty store. I just dove into our back issue catalog and eventually came across your run of Gotham Adventures. And just like any self-respecting Batman fan, I love that show. Uh, I even love the new Batman Adventures, even though a lot of fans don't quite seem to enjoy it as much as the uh, the original few seasons. But um, I, one thing that really impressed me with your issues of Gotham Adventures is that you could tell that, yeah, if, if a kid picked this up, it would be okay, but it really felt like there was a lot of mature material there that could easily be transposed with any of the mainline Bat books. And, uh, and, and that's something I've always appreciated about your work on that series. So tell me just about the philosophy that goes into the, ha- having the job of creating new stories for a character who has already been in so much across multiple mediums for decades, because that seems like it would be a difficult job, at least for me, but I'm not a particularly creative person. So what's the process like for you? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure that goes along with trying to come up with a new story or when I was, mm-hmm. when I was an editor having to, um, take care of, take charge of, watch over this character that is is several things at once. Sure, because when you were an editor, you had to be cognizant of pretty much not only everything that was going on at the time, but pretty much a lot of what was done before. Is that right? Yeah, you had to keep... It was, it was juggling, you know, seven... I don't want to say chainsaws because it wasn't that dangerous, but seven bowling <laughs> balls at once, you know, because, yeah, we had to know continuity uh, from, from historically... But also, mm-hmm. current continuity, keep an eye on what's coming up. And one of my jobs, my last few years there, in addition to being a full editor, I was uh, I had a title, I was known as the Batman Group Liaison, which meant that anytime somebody wanted to borrow 
Batman or a Bat character for their books, which was all the time, understandably, uh, right. I was the one they talked to. So I had to say yes or no. And if yes, I read the scripts. I looked at the pencils. I, I did all that kind of stuff. I looked at our licensed products. So, you know, lunch boxes and beach towels and action figures and video games and read novelizations. I was the one who liaised with the animated people with, you know, Bruce and Paul, uh, Bruce, Tim and, and Paul Dini. Um, all that, all that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, the jerk who had to say no <laughs> a lot of times. Um, because I, I remember reading a thing sometime in the, the early 90s, which said worldwide more people recognized Batman than they did the American president, which, you know, is, is understandable. Um, but there's a lot of pressure that goes along with that. I mean, he's, he's many things. He is literally, well, he, he's one of the greatest characters created in the history of fiction uh, mm-hmm. for my money, you know, up there with, sure. with whomever Hamlet, uh, Sherlock Holmes, but Atticus Finch, he's also, you know, a billion dollar property. Yeah. Well over a billion dollars now. So there was a lot, a lot of pressure. It was an honor. Um, you know, I'd grown up when I was four years old. I couldn't wait for the Adam West reruns to come on every day. Loved the sure. Adam West show. So when it came time to write him, um, you know, there's there's all that pressure. I, you know, Alan Moore had written Batman. You know, Frank Miller, Denny O'Neill, Neil Gaiman. That's that's a lot of pressure. Because, yeah. On the other hand, you know, I know I'm probably not going to outdo those guys. So there's, you know, to some extent, uh, he's such a great character. You can screw it up, but mm-hmm. you know, you've got an awful lot to fall back on as well. Especially with some of, you know, if if Tim Levins is drawing your story, you can write a very not great story and it's going to look great and that will cover an awful lot of your sins. Mm. You know, if, if you've got uh, whomever Robert De Niro, you know, acting your script, he's going to make you sound pretty good. Even if, even if your dialogue isn't that great. So that was, that was a nice fallback. I I worked with some amazing artists, Mm. Ryan Stelfries and and Rick Burchett. But when it came time to, to come up with stories for him, one of the things that's amazing about the Batman is that he's got this huge, Awesome cast, right? A lot of great villains, a lot of great supporting characters that you can easily tell a story about with him sort of as a supporting character. In fact, that's one of the things I used to love sometimes is I liked to tell, and I liked it when other people did this too, stories about, you know, some ordinary citizen of Gotham and the way their lives interact with the Batmans, where the Batman's almost, in a lot of my favorite Batman stories, he is almost a supporting character. So sure. if you go through a lot of my, my Gotham adventures... Um, frequently it'll actually be about the villain and the Batman is almost a guest star. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, well, go ahead. You, you make him more ethereal that way, don't you? I mean, it seems like if you still feel his presence, even though he's not always there, then he's succeeding in his desire to appear omnipresent to his enemies. That's what I mean. That's that's what it seems like to me. Yeah, that, anyway. that, that's that's a really good way of putting it. You don't have to always be looking at when when you're in New York City. You don't always have to be looking at the Empire State Building to know it's there. Sure. You know, but it'll keep coming in and out of your peripheral vision as you're walking or driving around. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's something that can you can sort of situate yourself according to. So that invariably leads me to uh, to the game. Yes. And uh, 
I mean, I'm sure that there's an interesting story that, that gets you to the position of representing Batman. Because, I mean, so at the time, I mean, it was 2003, these new systems have come out that are much more powerful than what has come before. Mm-hmm. There's much more of an ability now for video games to represent narrative fiction, mm-hmm. more so than there has been at any other point in, in the history of video games. But before... Before you were obviously on that side of it, what was your history with video games? Did you play games as a kid? Yes and no. My uh, my parents were pretty anti-video games. They uh, yeah. big believers in get out of the house, come back, you know, when it's dinner time. Sure. So for most of my childhood, it was actually a family joke. I'm the youngest of five. Um, my desire for an Atari or ColecoVision was was all-consuming. God, I wanted one of those. And so when I'd go over to a friend who had an Atari or something like that, um, I just, you know, they just wanted to do something else, and all I wanted to do was, was, was play. Mm-hmm. But then just, you know, whatever, I went more in a, a music-related direction uh, in, in high school and college. Mm-hmm. And... Never really got back into video games. Didn't really know anything about them until I got offered the game, the the, the Batman Dark Tomorrow game. Um, I was freelance. I was writing Gotham Adventure at the time, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the video games editor at, at, at DC, trying to remember how this was. Oh, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, he called and offered, we had worked together, Greg and I had worked together um, at at DC when I was was on staff. So when they needed a uh, uh, a writer, he, he contacted me and I came in and, and we talked. Um, then he left and Mike Siglane took over as uh, as as my, my editor contact. Um, okay. And Mike knew that I knew nothing about, about video <laughs> games, so he he tutored me in, uh, in in the ways of video games and told me what to uh, uh, like what to look up. And so you know, I, I did whatever it was, Metal Gear Solid and, and Tomb Raider and a bunch of them, and I was just staggered by everything, how sophisticated at, for the time. Um, right. The design was the stories. So sure. I had a crash course of, of a couple weeks of just playing. I was like, hey, honey, sweetie, I'm working. And it looks <laughs> like I'm playing video games, but seriously, I'm working. Um, so I did that uh, once I once I got the gig. So I'd have some idea of what they were what they were looking for. OK. All right, man. So that that must have been kind of an interesting revelation to see how how far the technology had progressed and how much more permissive it was of more traditional types of storytelling interspersed with the moments of uh of gameplay yeah that's that's exactly correct you know this was this was fairly early days so it's you know there uh, there weren't pixar was not sort of the the all global encompassing you know behemoth it is now again the, the computer graphics for these video games now look pretty pretty primitive but at the time they were you know, in 2001 or whatever it was, they were pretty damn impressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember uh, 
when I was when I was a teenager because I was in middle school about that time. I was a big wrestling fan, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember seeing first like the first gameplay videos of a new wrestling game that was coming out uh, with the launch of the original Xbox. Mm. And I was just floored at how real it looked for the time. I mean, it, 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 there, it, I had a hard time. Now, you know, I look at it now, and it doesn't really look like much. But, I mean, at the time, it was, wow, the light reflects off of the metal in such an interesting way. And look at how the crowd is moving and the sounds and all of those things. I mean, it looked spectacular. Right. So, uh, of course, you know, as a kid who had grown up on Batman, the, the very first movie I ever saw when I was 18 months old at a California drive-in theater was the, the 89 Burton film. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've had Batman my entire life, literally. Right. So I've always, I'd always craved for some kind of immersive Batman video game experience uh, in the realm of three-dimensional gaming ever since gaming transitioned from two to three dimensions. So, I mean, I remember as a, as a teenager scouring what there was of the Internet to see if I could find something out. And I remember, I think it was, it must have been in 2001, I had heard these rumors of a GameCube-exclusive Batman video game based off of the comic book version of the character, which excited me to no end, put me on a course to getting a GameCube, mm-hmm. Uh, and I was going to get a GameCube specifically so I could play this game, and eventually that game turned out to be Dark Tomorrow. So did you come into the picture, what, was it about 2000 or 2001? That uh... I wish I still had my emails. Yeah, it must have been, let's see, it must have been 2001, because I remember where I was living. I was living out on Long Island at the time, and mm-hmm. we moved... January second, two thousand and two, if I'm recalling correctly, down to Virginia. So it must have been sometime in the in the spring or so, uh, spring okay. or summer of two thousand one. All right, and um, so when it came time to actually put your fingers to the keyboard and hash out what this story was going to be, what was that process like? Did you have to submit an outline about, or did they, did maybe the game designers gave you an idea? Of, uh, of some of the stuff that they'd have the player do, and you could fashion a story around that? Or did you pretty much have autonomy to create your own story for Batman in this game? I didn't understand how, how a video game was, was created at all. So mm-hmm. I probably, I think I did way more work <laughs> than I needed to. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, of of laying out, you know, I, I I laid out so much gameplay, which was not at all, you know, appropriate or or necessary. Um, okay. Uh, I think the outline. I'm guessing that yeah, I'm guessing I I provided an outline. That or did I get it? Hold on, I'm actually opening up a something called uh, outline from July of 2000. Really? Oh, okay. Um, wow. So you were you were definitely yeah. starting early. Yeah, then. I was. Um, so yeah, so I guess I gave gave that must be what I did. I gave them an outline. I know that I'm almost sure the storyline was mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume I'm the one who said Rache, but maybe that was handed to me. Okay. Um, but then I just, you know, I, I, I had a lot of contact with, with Mike Seglane at DC. 
Mm -hmm. once Greg Ross left. I remember coming in for a a meeting um, with Chemco, um, a very long, very tense meeting. Um, There were a lot of places where DC and and Chemco did not at all see see eye to eye, although I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, So, yeah, that was part of it was, and if I'm recalling correctly, because everything had to be translated, you know, I'd send in an outline, and it would be weeks before I'd hear anything back. Sure. It was a long, long process. Right, because Chemco and, uh, and HotGen, who actually developed the game, were based out of Japan. Right. Exactly. Okay. Excellent. Huh. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating, because uh, as you have even made available on your own website, you know, the, the cinematics are still uh, completely visible and all over the Internet. And, I mean, one of the things that just immediately strikes me before we actually get into the meat of the story itself is the the wide cast that's used because yes Raish of course Raish al Ghul is the primary villain of the story but I mean you go everywhere you invoke his allies uh, in the in the police department as well as in uh, in in crime fighting on the streets of Gotham and then you rather brilliantly I think go take us into the asylum itself and put us front and center with a, a very large sample of some of Batman's most memorable villains. So, I mean, if you had the autonomy then to actually create the story, what's the actual process of writing the script itself? So I assume that this is probably late 2000, early 2001, that you're actually starting to write the script uh, that will become the final story. What's that process like? Is it is it very dissimilar from writing comics? Or is it more akin to maybe screenwriting or, yeah, or television writing? It's much more. Basically, I, it was I was like a kid in a candy store. They they basically I think said I could use any characters I I wanted. So mm. as you know, I pretty much used them all. Yeah. Um, and it was it was amazing. Yeah, it was like it was much more like writing a screenplay than writing comics. One of the one of the things about writing comics is there are only so many panels and word balloons you can fit on a page and. There are, you know, assuming your comic's going to be printed, you've got a page count that you cannot run over, as opposed to novels or screenplays where the sky's the limit. Obviously, that's not quite true with screenplays, because, you know, it costs millions of dollars. So, yeah, so it was basically like writing a screenplay. I, you know, I wrote an introductory scene, like sort of the the pre-credits scene in um in Wayne Manor he's flashing back to his parents getting killed he's becoming bat you know goes down into the cave becomes batman all that kind of stuff and i just you know i had freedom whereas a scene in Gotham with black mask i might only be able to devote say 3 pages of a 22 page story to it here right you know i could basically make it as long as i wanted um my natural instinct is towards concision and brevity anyway, but, mm-hmm. but I could make it basically as long as I wanted. And, you know, obviously they would cut down as, as required for budgetary reasons, but sure. yeah, it was amazing. I could just, I, I just treated the whole thing like, like, like it was a movie. Uh, yeah. You know, I broke it into three acts. I had the inciting incident. I had all that kind of stuff, the denouement. Um, it was one of the biggest projects. Uh, it was the big, biggest project I've e- I'd ever written up to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my my first second graphic novel that I'm working on now is bigger, but it was 
it was amazing, just so much fun. I got to, I, I, I pictured it as though I were finally getting to write a Batman movie using the Batman from the comic books. You know, this was shortly after the George Clooney Batman film. This was right. well before the first Christopher Nolan Batman movie. So, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like this was... <laughs> this was your chance to truly represent who he was. I did. I, I'm laughing, of course, because I know how it all turns out. But it- Well, well... <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, you know, that is if 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 you're okay with me shooting more praise your way. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, we'll get into this of course in a, a little bit later on as we dive dive into the critical reception, but I mean, that was to me when I first took the story in for this game and I'm sure it's true of many many other people who uh who who put in the time to play it. Uh, it was revelatory in that respect because, you know, I think by that point, the, like the Sandy Cholera Batman dead end fan film had hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was pretty mind blowing in and of itself to see that. But from an official production, seeing the devotion to the more truthful tenets of who Batman is and what he's about, because we certainly hadn't been getting that in the movies for the last little while. We got it in the animated series to varying degrees, but this was even able to push things further. I mean, in that respect, the story for Dark Tomorrow is is, is definitely a revelation, especially considering that it happened, that, that it came out in the, that sort of dark period between Batman and Robin and Batman Begins. Right. So, I mean, as a Batman fan, that was definitely something that I found, I found a great deal of personal value in is the fact that this story... And, you know, I, I end up getting ahead a little bit here, too, but, I mean, I, I taped those cinematics. I would, I would make sure that I beat the game, and then you could, of course, go back and watch the cinematics individually, and I, I would record them on a blank videotape so that I could just watch them again. And, I mean, th- those, those are the kinds of moments that, you know, we just we were never sure if we were actually going to see in something like live action. Right. So, I mean, that story... I, I cannot praise you enough for that story because it really is to me anyway one of those one of those really um I, I, and I, I said it before but it is a revelatory Batman experience especially for the time in which it came out and I can't give you enough credit for that. Wow, well, that so thank you that's very very nice very gratifying to hear. Well I mean it's and you know people w- one of the things that I wanted to do with this podcast in particular is um you know bring attention to games that might be a little overlooked for one reason or another and um and when it comes to the story of dark tomorrow it absolutely is so having you here is an extraordinary thrill for me and I'm sure for anyone else who who recognized the uh the the dedication and the truthfulness to batman that that story represented um but when it when it comes to actually setting it up, uh, did you have an idea, or did did the developers at Chemco give you an idea of the kind of structure it would follow level wise, or did you turn in your story and let them uh, divvy it up that way? I think I'm the one who actually wrote the outline for the various. For basically, I, I wrote the outline. You know, it starts. He goes into Arkham, uh, excuse me, he goes into Gotham, you know, deals with some criminals there, meets with Gordon, all that kind of stuff. Gordon gets kidnapped, 
goes to, you know, finds him. I assume it's okay to talk about the spoilers here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, it's been, if, if you haven't played the game by this point or even watched the cinematics, it's on you because we're going full in. Uh, you know, breaks into Arkham, finds out it's not really the Joker, you know, travels yeah. to uh, the Himalayas or wherever we, we set, set Raish's castle, fights his way through Raish, the various ending cinematics, uh, the three different mm-hmm. versions or whatever it was. Um, and then, yay. <laughs> you know, the day is safe. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the one who laid that all out. Okay. Uh, and then wrote the actual cinematics. Um, so, right. yeah. Again, I'm assuming there was a lot of back and forth with Chemco that I'm not recalling. Of course. But, uh, but I'm pretty sure the basic structure of the story uh, all came from me. Again, I, I have to emphasize, Mike Siglain at DC and I would talk for hours on the phone. Sure. Um, about, you know, it would be really cool if he did this, if he did that. You know, he can go in through the sewers, so the first person he meets is, you know, Killer Croc, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. This was an extremely collaborative uh, uh, endeavor between me and, and Mike Siglain. So, mm-hmm. but I think, again, that I'm the one who, who did the, the basic outline um, that, that ended up being in the game. Okay. Now, how long, when, when, after all the, uh, the, the basic outline work is done mm-hmm. and you're actually writing the scenes that will appear in the cinematics, how long did that process take you? Uh, uh, how long did it take me to write the scenes? Yeah. You know, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, it was some of the easiest writing I've ever done. Really? Oh, yeah. You know, at that point, I've been writing comics. So I, you know, I knew the basic, you know, writing and editing comics for, for 10 years or whatever. So I knew the basic tenets of storytelling. Um, you know, not, not saying I was great, but I knew what I was doing. I knew how to do it. And in this case, God, it was so easy for the most part. It's, you know, I'm just writing dialogue between Batman and Commissioner Gordon standing in an alley talking about whatever. That's the kind of thing that, you know, any comic book writer can, can do in their sleep. Sure. And it's just so much fun, especially because, again, I didn't have to worry about page counts or panel counts. I could just let the dialogue flow. And so, boom, you know, I, I, it would just come pouring out. I'd have to go over, you know, and edit it and tweak it and add bits of action and things like that. But each of the individual scenes was incredibly easy to get the first draft down, at least. Yeah, very much so. Hmm. Now, um, did you have a title before you started writing, or did you actually come – obviously, the title appears in the dialogue near the end of the story. Yeah, I'd be very surprised. I don't remember, but I, I highly doubt that was mine. Okay. Um, I could check that. You know, again, I haven't had that email address in, in 15 years. Sure. And right. that's where it would be if uh, – I, I suspect that came from, from DC or, or Chemco. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine it would be pretty easy to incorporate, especially someone as self-righteous as Rachel Ghoul, who thinks that he's helping things exactly. in the way that he does. Exactly. I, I can see how that would be an easy transit. Well, and you know, it it does when when you talk about how easy it was to actually write it, it does make sense considering that you obviously believed in the story that was being told. Mm-hmm. You were able, like you said, to use all of the toys in the toy box that you wanted to use. Uh, I mean, I think that it would be easier to name 
characters that don't appear in the game right. than it is to actually name all of the ones that do appear right. in the game. So after the the writing process is finished, then what are you what are you doing? Are you waiting for um for maybe proofs or maybe uh animatics from from the actual cinematic scenes that were used or do you just kind of let them go and and you wait until the the final product comes out? Yeah, I would, you know, I would send in I think I sent the script in in thirds. I think I sent sent the first act, second act, third act in is is my mm-hmm. recollection. So, you know, I'd send everything up to him going into Arkham, then I'd send the Arkham stuff in, then I sent all the race stuff. Okay. And at each step I would get notes from Kemco and I would have to you know, rewrite, tweak, whatever, my script. But after I was all done, I just sat back, and every once in a while, uh, Mike would email me JPEGs of the designs of the various characters. Uh, and, you know, in, in 2001, Internet was not blazing fast. So it would take right. a long time to download a file of, you know, a Batman turnaround, especially the, the tiny little animations. They were probably, I don't know, dot uh, mov files or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it was just like literally him turning, you know, his his like him turning around, and that would be like three megs and take an hour and a half to download. Um, sure. I don't remember when I saw the cinematics. I don't remember if they actually. I think they. Oh, uh, you know what they did? They sent them to me on a DVD. Oh. Uh, well, they they sent them to me on, on like you know whatever a DVDR. Uh, mm-hmm. At some point. And, you know, I was just seeing, seeing your work, your words, your story come to life like that. Oh my God. It was, it was, it was pretty magical. Uh, I am. Yeah. I imagine it had to be pretty thrilling. It, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, one other little thing that I was just always curious about, um, because by that point in the comics, the yellow oval was pretty much gone, but it, it does make an appearance in this game. Is that something that you dictated or is that something that DC wanted on Batman's costume, do you do you have that information? My guess, I don't. Uh, I am I am one of the very few people who I'm actually a big fan of the oval, mm-hmm. um, because I think it one of the coolest images that you can do with Batman. I freaking love when you know two people are talking, bad guys or whatever, and behind them in the darkness, all you see are Batman's eyes and his yellow oval. I oh sure, that's such a, a powerful, effective image. And I think you really lose something when it's just the gray bat. I don't deny the gray, you know, the oval doesn't make sense unless you're going with the, it's, um, armor and it's deliberately designed to draw their, their gunfire. Right. Um, but I just think it's a great design element. I just think it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I would guess that it's simply that when they started the, the, the game, the oval was still in place and, you know, it took them three years or whatever to, to, to do. And, you know, going through and, and getting rid of something like the oval, that's, man, that's a lot of work. Oh, sure. Yeah, I can imagine that. Well, and even just on the face of the story itself, I mean, it seems to me, and I, I, I don't have as solid of information on this as I would like to, but just from the top of my head, I mean, the act of actually hiring someone who has experience writing the character in the source material for a video game specifically, to my knowledge, I don't think had really been done before in any other notable project. I mean, um, nowadays, you know, you hear, oh, Paul Dini wrote this game and Dan Slott wrote this game and, you know, and Matt Fraction wrote this game and all of these things. But 
back then, first of all, story in a video game, especially story that went to this depth, was rare. And uh, and it doesn't seem to me like there were a lot of other instances of a video game developer actually looking to someone who had represented the character in his home medium to tell a story uh, for for their medium. So in that regard, it seems like there's a degree of truthfulness that Dark Tomorrow has, especially considering the era in which it came out, that uh, was to my knowledge anyway, unprecedented. Were you were you aware of the rarity of something like that? Did you know that this was probably going to be a first for this character as far as the depth? I mean, there had been a couple of other Batman video games on those systems up until that point, but like the most notable one, which was probably Batman Vengeance, did not have a story that went to the depths that this one did. Is that something that you were cognizant of, or is that something that you kind of have to put aside in order to do the work. No, that was actually something that uh that we we were aware of at the time. It was um something of, you know, a perfect storm. It was DC had had these two um special projects editors, Greg Ross and, and Mike Siglane, mm-hmm. that were both big time video game fans. Uh, but who were also comics fans. Uh, sure. And with whom, you know, the, the people in the bat office had, had worked and gotten along with really, really well. Um, so there was a, a mutual trust and admiration and stuff like that. So, you know, and video games were still, you know, very much on the, on the ascendance. Um, in terms of importance, popularity, uh, money, uh, yeah, both both in terms of the budgets and in in how much they were they were raking in. So it was like I said, it was just kind of this this perfect storm. Um, I was at the time, you know, on the on the younger side of regular comic book writers. So that mm-hmm. you know, most of the comic book writers, just that five or ten year difference. Um, meant that they weren't as tuned into video games as not again, not that I actually was, but I got tuned into them because of this. Um, sure. So it was just it was just really you know extremely fortuitous a, a, a confluence of events that just worked out perfectly. So yes, actually though to go back, Mike and I, Mike Siglian and I were completely aware that we had a really unique special opportunity here, and we were absolutely determined to make the most of it to do things like get Oracle into a video game, get, you know, the Cassandra Kane Batgirl into a video game, these kind of things. We were 100% aware of how lucky we were and were absolutely determined to make the most. Yeah, great. Well, um, so now we've, we've gone over the story, we've gone over the process of creating it, we've gone over the, the thrill that you obviously felt in, in getting the, the chance to craft a story like this with uh, a lack of limitation uh, that you seem to have been unaccustomed to. So up to the point that the game was released, and it was released in March of 2003, um, did you guys have any inclination about how the development was, was progressing? Were there any <laughs> Were there any red flags that may have come up uh, about the actual engineering of the game itself 
not meeting the quality of the story that you obviously put a lot of time and effort into? Um, I certainly had inclinations. Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't know obviously the extent of it. Um, I was, you know, at the, by for the last year or whatever of the development of the game, you know, before it came out, uh, I had nothing to do with it, nothing. So the only way I would know anything would be is if I was talking to somebody at DC and as a courtesy or to vent, they would say something about it. But I had, you know, okay. by that point, I had no official, um, you know, input in, into the game at all. Things are so far along at that point. Sure, sure. But did you get the chance or did you get the, uh, the impression at all? Uh, let's say in the, the final month or two before the game actually hit stores that there were, people bracing for impact, let's say. I think I did. I don't think I understood. I think it was, yeah, I knew that they were having issues with the steering and the brakes, but I don't think I knew that they were having issues with the steering and the brakes, and they were going down a mountain at 90 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, they, oh, that's unfortunate. They're in a parking lot, and, you know, they're having issues with the steering and the brakes. You know, they're probably going to, you know, get in a fender bender. No, nah, it was considerably worse than that obviously yeah and and the windshield was tinted from the inside and the rearview mirror was operating independently of everything else exactly yeah uh well i mean because one of the things of course that i do in in this show is i actually go over the experience of playing the game right and and ap- not long after the podcast drops I'll, I'll be doing a broadcast of the actual experience of playing it uh-huh. Better- uh <laughs> Well, but I mean, so I guess handing things off. So the game is released. Let me just tell you a little bit about uh, my experience with it, because I'm and I, you know, at the time nowadays, as a Batman fan, one of the things that I firmly believe is that uh, even when especially when something has gone wrong, you should be honest and say so if you truly love the character. Right. Just like, you know, if you see if you see. Uh, your child doing something that they probably shouldn't do. You can still love them, but you should be able to tell them when they're doing something that's not that's not right. But as a 15-year-old in 2003, I didn't quite reach that point of, of fandom yet. So I actually rented Dark Tomorrow first. Ooh. And then, um, you know, I, the, the very first thing that you play, of course, is actually swinging up to the uh, the location of the bat signal mm-hmm. on the roof of, of Gotham PD. And that was really frustrating, but it didn't quite hit me. I was just thinking, okay, well, this is the beginning. I'll, you know, my rental's up in a little while, so I'll, I'll just buy it. I went to a Toys R Us, and it was, you know, back when you bought video games at Toys R Us, it was almost like a secret operation. They would have to go in the back, and you would bring a little paper up front, and they would go in the back and get it and bring it out to you. And that was a thrilling experience. So I got home and loaded up my save and, and kept playing through it. And probably about an hour, which is way too long, but about an hour into it is when I started to understand that this thing probably wasn't very well built. but Again, to your credit, the thing that kept me going was the story. It, the 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 actual visual look of the game was was interesting, but the visual look of the of, of the cinematics, the score, which I don't think people talk about enough, the score is spectacular. Yes, it is. Um, so all of those elements, everything but the game, was keeping me playing the game. 
And um, so the first time I actually get to Raish's castle, I become frustrated when, after I think I do everything right, he still destroys the planet, basically. Right. And uh, it's just like there wasn't a very clear path to the, the fulfilling ending of the game. So I even bought the strategy guide that came with a, a, a stapled-in copy of the Tencent Adventure, even, I remember. <laughs> but um, after I actually got to see the full ending of the game, I mean, it just it was so confusing to me how such a spectacular story could be put into something that was clearly not given the the attention in, in user testing that it probably should have. So that's my perspective from actually from from release to playing it through completion. So when the game actually hit, did this blindside you? I mean you said you had an idea that things were probably not going well. Um but when when the critical reception started to become clear after people were playing the game for a while, what was that like for you? That must have been that that must have been disconcerting to a degree. You know, I read a piece a couple months ago on, I think it was IO9. Um, I think it was IO9. It might have been the beat. Anyhow, about how it said, you know, dear video game fans, stop pre-ordering video games. We Right. Kotaku, I Kotaku. think. I think I read that very piece. Yeah. yeah. And they said, you're just enabling. We have to stop it. And, you know, that's, when you've put so many millions of dollars into a whatever it is and you've got a deadline and your your thing isn't ready, whether it's a movie, a TV show, you know, a car, whatever it is, you know, you've got that as, as from a business point of view, you've got those incredible pressures. It's, Funny because you know I read that the Kotaku piece and I thought oh yeah I hear where, <laughs> I hear where you're coming from because <laughs> I was there 15 years ago sort of on the sidelines watching you know right. it's that simple clearly they needed at least six more months right on the game maybe even even more than that uh, maybe maybe the the engine was so fatally flawed that it wasn't even fixable with another year I don't know mm-hmm. um, I knew it was coming I was not expecting the level of vitriol, um, which was understandable. I mean, I'm not, hey, not, not throwing any shade on anyone who felt, right. who felt you know, duped, you know, uh, bait and switch or anything like that. It was a, you know, it was not a well, it was not what it should have been to put it mildly. So, you know, you spent a lot of money. What, I, I really don't remember. What was it? 25 bucks, 40 bucks? Uh, 50. 50. Jesus. You know, that's a, that is a lot of freaking money. Yeah. So, you know, in 2003 or whatever, what is that? That's, I don't know, seven movies, something like that, in a theater that you could could have gone to instead. You know, that's whatever it is. It was five CDs from Amazon. Um, that's a lot of damn money. And Mm -hmm. yeah, you should. You should get something good for that kind of money, and if you don't, you should be really pissed. Absolutely. Sure. So I completely understood. Uh, it was still, you know, it was pretty brutal to watch. The one saving factor uh, for me was that, almost without exception, they almost always said, 
the story's good, or the cinematics are nice, but, like, there would literally be, like, one line in almost every review that said something nice about the story or the cinematics or both. You know, out of, right. out of, out of a hundred sentences, absolutely savaging the game. Um, so, you know, that was nice. It was a bit of a bummer. I, you know, I had had so much fun. I had obviously hoped that I would get to do more such things because this was a dream. And, you know, that very quickly, it was clear that, that being associated with this was not going to be helping my career at all. Um, sure. But, you know, at the end of the day, I had, I had these, you know, I had this 45 minute or so Batman movie that I mainly wrote that I'm you know, still pretty happy with. So, yeah. you know, glass half full. Sure. Well, and, and you definitely should be happy with it. I mean, it is kind of a travesty, but I mean, it's a travesty and in a way it's not only because this was released as a video game. So the the outlets, of course, have to review the game first and, and the extraneous elements second. And the story is primarily considered, at least at the time, to be a constraintious element in the story. Absolutely. But, um, Anyone who actually puts the time in to see this story unfold largely always has positive things to say about it. I mean, even now, the 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 legacy of Dark Tomorrow is one that people are very quick to dismiss because the game ended up being so problematic. But, I mean, that story likely gets someone new watching it maybe every day mm. since since those cinematics are freely available on YouTube. Um, and it's hard for me anyway, as both a comic book fan and a video game fan, not to see the positive influence that this story in particular would have on uh, on a series of amazing Batman games that would arrive just a few years later. Um, I mean... I probably wasn't the only big Batman fan who, in August of 2009, when we started playing Arkham Asylum, didn't at least have a thought, oh, Dark Tomorrow did this first, you know? Uh, obviously, you know, creatively speaking, sure. not, uh, not, not gameplay-wise, but uh, Dark Tomorrow really did open up the possibilities for the kinds of stories that could be explored in Batman games. And honestly, you know... Even though it can be a chore to play through, there are still elements of the design of the game itself that got things right. The The level of darkness in the actual levels uh, was unlike anything that we had seen before. But again, it feels to me anyway like that stuff is bleeding through from the story into the actual level designs. Um, but one thing that I did want to ask you, because in the lead up to the game's release, uh, people were also touting the fact that a, um, I assume a writer named Kenji Tarada of Final Fantasy fame had something to do with the creation of the, the creative end of things. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't. I saw that as well, and I was like, oh. Okay. That's, oh. that's interesting. Um, <laughs> No, that was all after the the script left left my hands. Okay, so that must have been in the development phase then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um so what's what's the primary legacy of uh, you said obviously that you are are happy with the work that you did as you should be. 
And um, and the people who actually created the cinematic should also be applauded for staying true to the tone of the story that you wrote and, and placing, like we said, the, the pretty phenomenal score and some actually pretty good voice actors, considering that they didn't use um, some of the more closely identified performers for those parts. I actually think the voice acting is pretty good as well. But what's what's the legacy to you, especially when you see now, you know, that Batman video games and, and particularly a Batman video game franchise is such an important part of Warner Brothers game publishing? I mean, do you feel like you you can own a little at least a small part of that? Um, you know, I think it is, it's nice to think so. It looks, you know, nice on the resume. Mm-hmm. I love that I have this, you know, as we, we said, this 45 minute film that I, that I kind of wrote. Um, if I could, I would erase the first, you know, two minutes of it from existence, but, <laughs> but, uh, no, honestly, I think it's, what you said, you know, when you were playing Arkham, you knew the uh, you knew how Dark Tomorrow had had you know largely been there first and maybe had some small impact. But I think you're in the one percent of gamers who do. I don't think it really, you know, I'd love to think it did, but I don't think it really had much of an impact uh, on the development of video games. Um, well, maybe I can change your mind a little bit with that. Okay. Because in, in Game Informer magazine, in, I think it was, it, it was either mid 2008 or very early 2009, they, they did a cover story with Rocksteady Studios on their, on the development of the game that would become Arkham Asylum. Okay. And Sefton Hill, who was the game's director, who has gone on to direct all three of the, uh, Rocksteady developed Arkham games, he said, there is, and he didn't name any names, which I think was a very strategic and precise move on his part. He said there was no Batman video game that we did not look at to try and take the best elements from in order to make as definitive a game as we could. So, I mean, looking, looking at the body of Batman games pre-2009, I mean, I... And the very first episode of the show we did on the Batman Begins game, which I think was no small influence on what would become Arkham Asylum uh, for both gameplay and story. But, I mean, so he probably also looked at Vengeance, probably looked at Rise of Sint Zoo, mm-hmm. and I'm very certain that he had to have looked at the best part of Dark Tomorrow, which was your part. So even if they didn't name Dark Tomorrow, and of course I can't confirm that, but even if he didn't name that game, I have a hard time thinking that looking at the body of Batman games that were created before, they had to have been at least a little impressed with the creative aspect of Dark Tomorrow. Because even objectively speaking, that is good. And you, you seem like a very modest individual. You are an extraordinarily likable person, but... I am going to come to that defense often <laughs> because it really does feel to me like, uh, you know, Dark Tomorrow laid the groundwork creatively for the ways, the, the, the paths on which a Batman game could go. Arkham Asylum and, of course, Arkham City and definitely Arkham Knight took things to an entirely other stratosphere. But 
I really do think that the first step that showed them what they could do had to have come at least in some small way from your story. Well, that, that is nice. That is nice to hear. And, and I will like to think you are correct. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> well, um, I've had a blast and I hope you have too. Yeah, this is very, very enjoyable. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. What do you have any final thoughts about dark tomorrow? If someone, if someone comes across this episode and maybe they've never even heard of the game before, uh, what would what would you want to tell them about both the final product itself and your story? Uh, well, I'll tell you, when I think about Dark Tomorrow, one of the things I think about is a meeting in the DC conference room with Kemco where they had whatever, about a half dozen people sitting around the table, and we had about a half dozen, and there was one translator, and they were talking about their idea for when Batman breaks into Arkham and he's going to try to sneak in and he gets caught by the guards, and to distract the guards, he whips out a boombox and starts playing salsa music, and the guards get distracted, so distracted by dancing that he's able to sneak past them. <laughs> so to go to your question about did we have some idea that there was perhaps a bit of a train wreck on the way, I think it's safe to say we knew pretty early on that there wasn't a complete and total simpatico Vulcan mind meld going on. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That that is fascinating. <laughs> uh so that was that's that's one story that, that, that it's good to get out there. Yeah. Uh the yeah. other thing is, you know what? It's it is a obviously heavily flawed Batman game, but you know, sort of in the love not wisely but too well. Um it's possible that part one of the reasons it's so heavily flawed was because it was so ambitious. You know, sure. we threw everything and the kitchen sink in. We made Batman, I think, entirely true to his character. We got to use a cast of thousands, and they were all entirely true to their characters. There were a couple neat plot twists. It had, a, I think, a good story. It had good cinematics. Um, you know, it's a... You know what? It, it, it's like some of my favorite movies, I guess. It is a... Uh, uh, a noble failure. How's that? That's that's a very concise way of putting it, I think. <laughs> so it's like, so it's like Apollo thirteen, then, you know. Exactly. The, See, I, I was, the, yeah, I was I was I was going to use an example of of a movie that I think is a failure, but an incredibly noble one. But it was uh, far too uh, laudatory and uh, uh, t towards Dark Tomorrow. So I yeah, let's go with <laughs> let, I'll go with whatever you say. <laughs> well. That's, uh, I mean, I've I've certainly learned a lot about uh, about the behind the scenes aspects of this game. I mean, this is something that I've always been fascinated by, just because it's such a weird um, amalgamation of half of half of the the equation being so so right, and the other half just being so so wrong. So I mean, by definition, I guess you know if one half is an A and the other half is an F, then it comes out as a C, but uh, I, I, mean, I, I don't think that's it's more like if you got an A on your midterm and an F on your final, but the final <laughs> counts for two thirds of your grade, you know, so, sure. So it's more like uh, I did say that right. A on midterm, F on final. Yeah. So yeah, it's more yeah. like a D minus. Anyway. <laughs> 
Well, either way, I mean, the the people who actually did put the time in to, to play the game through to completion, or even people that may have come across those cinematics on, on YouTube, I mean, they all know that there's there's definitely something special about the story, and you were a a monumental part of the best part that that game put forward. So from this Batman fan, and I'm sure from at least five others, <laughs> thank you very much for that. And thank you very, very much for taking the time to join me uh, and, and talk about it today. I mean, I imagine that it can't be the the easiest topic to revisit in some circumstances. You know, it's not so much that it's emotionally difficult. It was just, it was a long time ago, and I have worked on so many stories since then. Sure. Uh, I, I've never understood how rock stars can be like, you know, in 1965 we were playing at the, the such and such club, and I remember, like, how the hell do you remember that? I can't remember, <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I, I've had people literally quote dialogue to me that I that I wrote five years ago, and I'm like, oh, really? That, that, hey, that's a good line. Like, you wrote that. I'm like, oh, that's a really good line then. No memory. No memory. So... Yeah, it, it's it's not so much that it's emotionally uh, difficult. It's, you know, it's sad that it wasn't better. I honestly think it's mainly funny at this point. Uh, you know, the disappointment has, has largely dissipated. And it's it's amusing that if there's still, if there really are still five people who are interested in the story, then, you know, mazel tov. God bless them. Well, in, in any event, I mean, you... It, it didn't cripple your ability to continue to tell stories with Batman. And I think that's the, that's the best thing to come out of this is that you still have an involvement and, and it sounds like uh, a future involvement that most people aren't even aware of, which is definitely good news for me. And I'm sure plenty of good news for a lot of other people. So we'll definitely keep our eyes out for that. Is there any other, um, any other work that you have coming up or anything else that you'd like to tell people about before we dismiss? Uh, everything else that I have, I've got like four projects in the works that are all unannounced. So unfortunately I cannot at this point in time. Ah, the infamous gag order. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it and, you know, be sure to, uh, to let me know when those announcements take place and I'll, 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 I won't be quiet about that. That'd be awesome. All right, great. Well, thank you to Scott Peterson for joining us, and uh, and we will dismiss from here. Also, see ya. You could make it. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> I know you weren't behind all this, Joker. What? You don't think I could have pulled all this off? Woo! And once again, a very special thanks to Scott Peterson for joining us in this issue's discussion portion. I hope that you learned a few interesting anecdotes because I know I did. Now, the discussion that you've just heard is actually a truncated version of a fuller, more in-depth conversation that Scott and I had. I'll be releasing the full, uncut version of my talk with Scott as issue number 5.1 of the podcast. In the full discussion, we delve more deeply into his career in comics, his recollections of being one of four people in a room at the moment that the infamous Batman villain Bane was conceived, 
as well as some of his insights about his philosophy on the Batman character, his perspective on some recent media, and whether or not he'll be in the theater anytime soon to watch Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Look for that to drop within a week of the release of this episode. And with that, we're going to close out Comics on Consoles issue number 5 and the legacy of Batman Dark Tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed this issue and hope that it inspires you to come back for a brand new one next month. So, naturally, what will we be exploring next month? Well, I had to choose a new live-action piece to try and tie the March issue into. We also saw another new iteration of an iconic character take form that month, this time on television. With the second season of Marvel's Netflix series Daredevil, we were introduced to other classic Marvel characters enjoying a rebirth in live-action, this time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Elektra now populates that world alongside Matt Murdock, but so does another iconic character. A guy with a permanent scowl on his face, and a skull on his chest. In that spirit, it seemed like an opportune time to play, perhaps, the single most brutal comic space game ever made, at least when talking about characters from the big two publishers. So, we'll be diving into a game that stands as a truthful and sometimes stomach-churning iteration of everyone's favorite anti-hero. Be sure to come back next month for Comics on Consoles issue number 6 as we dive into the 2005 video game The Punisher, developed by Volition Incorporated and published by THQ for the Microsoft Xbox, Sony PlayStation 2, and PC. Look for that issue to be released sometime in April. In the meantime, be sure to like the show on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Comics Consoles, and be sure to subscribe to the show on Podbean, iTunes, or your podcasting app of choice. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments for and about the show, then email me directly by sending a message to chris at comicsonconsoles.com. Until next month, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. So, why not play one in a video game? Thanks for listening, take care, and we'll talk with you again soon.